Welcome to the Commune Podcast. My name is Jeff Krasnow. Today on the show, I welcome Dr. Elisa Hallerman. Elisa is an attorney and member of the New York State Bar Association, and she holds a master's and doctorate in depth psychology and somatic studies, focusing on neuroscience and trauma. Elisa is also a drug and alcohol counselor, certified in yogic science for addictive behavior, and a member of the Institute for Functional Medicine. She is also the recent author of Soulbriety, a plan to heal your trauma, overcome addiction, and reconnect with your soul. And this book is a vulnerable and occasionally torturous excavation of Elisa's own personal journey to getting clean and eventually to rediscovering her own soul. Her transformation propelled her to leave her successful career as a Hollywood agent and create the first ever recovery management agency, RMA. RMA is Elisa's revolutionary approach to addiction and mental health support, where she provides comprehensive assessment, treatment teams, and crisis management. So in our discussion, Elisa and I delve into many of the subtle factors that influence this epidemic of addiction including its connection to depression, anxiety, and trauma. We discuss how the use of imagination and symbolism are often helpful tools in understanding and communicating with the soul on the road to healing. We discuss how the interruption of healthy attachment in developmental years can lead to the lack of connection with others later in life and negatively impact one's sense of self-worth. Our conversation illuminates the impact that adverse childhood experiences can contribute to loneliness and the correlation between loneliness and addiction. We discuss the physiological impact of addiction on the brain, specifically the dysregulation between the basal ganglia, which is responsible for survival instincts, and the frontal lobe, is significant for rational thought and decision-making. We explore the concept of post-traumatic growth and how we can find meaning in our suffering. Elisa really provides us with a tremendous amount of hope here and agency. Before we dive into the conversation, I want to let you know about some of our programs over on the Commune course platform. If you're interested in courses on addiction, happiness, meditation, functional medicine, and Ayurveda, you can sign up for 14 days of free all access to Commune's entire course library, which includes more than 130 courses on spiritual and physical health. Just go to onecommune.com trial. And please support this podcast by subscribing and leaving a review on your favorite podcatcher. really makes a huge difference. Okay, without further delay, I present to you Dr. Elisa Hallerman. Elisa, welcome to the Commune Podcast. Such a treat to be with you. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me, Jeff. Yeah. You know, as we were talking just before we started, I just really enjoyed your book so much, Sobriety, and congratulations. Um, I know what that gestation period looks like. It's not easy. Um, mm. It requires a lot of dark soul of the night, which we will 
explore. So just uh, well done. Um, and, you know, I, I found it really just to be a, a beautiful crafting of your own soul's journey. And it's, it's really a very different kind of a book uh, about addiction. I mean, certainly it has a lot of actionable components to it. Um, but I, it was really more about story um, and the opportunity for people to heal through story and, and to see some of their own story in, in yours and some of the other ones that you tell. And of course, I couldn't help but see some of my own story and some of my childhood and some of my trauma, et cetera. So um, I'm really uh, grateful that you bravely uh, exposed yourself so vulnerably in, in the book. Um, so the book starts with a, a rather vivid and harrowing um, account uh, yes. of you in a hotel room. Um, so perhaps we can start there, which I, I guess I would categorize that maybe as the midpoint of your life in some ways. Um, but, you know, could you describe your life at that juncture as an addict? Yes. So... I think my addiction really took off when I introduced drugs with alcohol. Alcohol definitely started when I was younger, but once I introduced drugs and cocaine specifically, things started to get darker faster. So in the beginning, I was able to use a little bit or put it away or have a bump or do this or be social. And after a while, because addiction is a chronic and progressive disease, you need more and more and more of it to get the desired effect and you build up a tolerance. And so what happened for me and at that point in the book was probably a year or two before I actually got sober, I was only able to use alone. And I would spend these three days, sort of Friday night to Monday morning, binging on alcohol and cocaine. And the book opens with a story about me going to my drug dealer's house and, you know, calling him incessantly over and over and over again. Who knows what time it was? Sometimes he would yell at me for calling too late. And I was like, that's your job, man. You know, <laughs> you're the cocaine right, yeah. dealer. Um, but anyway, so I, I, I had gotten to, I'd taken a taxi. Um, this is pre-Ubers. I'd taken a taxi <laughs> over to his house and asked the cab to wait and had gone in to buy the drugs that I was going to need for the next three days. And it's, it's, it's horrifying. It's horrifying for me to sit here now, 20 plus years in recovery, and look back on that girl, that woman who was so desperate to get this medicine. And that's what it was for me back then. It was medicine. I needed it like I needed air and water. And Everything else I knew, all the intellectual information I knew, anything I knew about what I really wanted, where I came from, what I craved, what my dreams were, how work was going, 
all of these things were just pushed to the side. And I wanted just to focus on getting high and everything else was pushed away and all the connections in my life and all the people in my life and my friends and my family. And it's really a devastating moment for me at that time. And it's, and I put it there in the beginning because I really wanted a people to understand. Yes, me too, which I think is one of the most powerful phrases that we can use to sort of combat shame and let people know, know this is happening. Because when I was in that hotel room after I had gone back and started using, I just thought that something was definitely wrong with me. I didn't know that I was suffering from the disease of addiction. I thought I was incapable of showing up and being quote unquote normal in life. Yeah, there's a, a, a couple of things that you said there um, that I want to pull on a little bit. And, and um, first of all, you mentioned shame. Mm -hmm. So I found it interesting that you said that you couldn't use in your own bedroom or in your own apartment that you essentially, even though you had an apartment, mm -hmm. um, that you actually had to go to a hotel in order yeah. to do it because of this real deep form of shame that you felt. And I, it seems like that is something a lot of people can relate to that you, you still had the awareness that there's something about you that wasn't right. Um, and then the, the other piece that I think would be really helpful for people to understand. And I think you mentioned it twice there is that, addiction is a disease and i still think a lot of people are under the understanding that addiction is a choice um mm. is addiction a choice no but let's be clear so obviously the very first time i chose to have a drink or i chose to try a drug I made a conscious decision in my quote unquote right mind. Mm -hmm. What happens is, and why we refer to it as a disease as opposed to a choice is because what we've learned over the last 20 years with neuroscience and being able to map and look at people's brain waves and how things are working is that we have learned that if we're looking at two parts of our brain, if we're looking at the back part of our brain, which is the reptilian part of our brain, which is responsible for our body temperature, our eyes blinking, our breathing, if we're not paying attention, and our survival mechanism of fight or flight. However, we also have the front part of our brain, which is responsible for our logical thinking, rational thought, going off of memories and making decisions, our impulse control. So what happens is these two parts of the brain work simultaneously. If something were to happen that put us in a state of fight or flight, we're walking in the woods, we see a bear, we start running before we even have time to think about it, before the front part of our brain comes online. 
And so, but shortly thereafter, a couple of milliseconds later, the front part of our brain comes online and says, hey, 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 let's stop sending all this adrenaline and all this cortisol and God forbid, like run into the street and let's start making a decision about what to do and let's go off our memories and we start working the front part of our brain. What happens in long-term chronic use of a substance is that we're getting an abnormal dopamine hit from it. So for survival, we learned that when we were thirsty, if we drank water, we felt satiated. Same with food, same with lots of things. So initially, when someone ingests a drug or substance, you feel a dopamine hit. What happens is because you build a tolerance and you need more and more and more, that dopamine hit, that salience of the dopamine hit becomes so incredibly high that we get stuck in the back part of our brain, which is saying, we need this, like we need air and water, and we will stop at nothing to continue to get it. And that sort of stop-start switch, if you will, between the front part of our brain and the back part of our brain ceases to work properly. And therefore, we are no longer able to make a choice, a decision, go off our memory of what happened last time, all bets are off, which is why really capable, successful, amazing, thoughtful, creative addiction knows no, you know, there's no lines that it doesn't cross. And people will do things that they wouldn't normally do. And that's why, because they've lost the ability to make a good decision. So it's mm. completely not a choice once you've gotten to that place. Mm. That is an absolutely fantastic articulate description. I think that's really going to help people understand, certainly help me understand right there, this kind of tug of war that is existing inside of our nervous system between the locus of reason in the prefrontal cortex and essentially the hind brain, the amygdala, et cetera, which is um, really the part of the brain most famously associated with fight or flight or the mm -hmm. sympathetic uh, nervous system reaction uh, associated with all of those different excitatory neurotransmitters and hormones. And there's this like tug of war there. And I think what you're saying is that addiction is the result of a, of a dysregulation there within that tug of war where essentially the hind brain gets the upper hand. Exactly. Before we go into kind of some of the upstream sources or, or provenance in some ways of addiction, Maybe you could just frame the scale of this issue right now, both in the United States and globally. And maybe you could just touch on the impact of COVID-19 in relationship to addiction. Definitely. So we already knew prior to going into COVID that there was an opiate epidemic. And... We're past the point where don't do drugs is a good 
you know, idea to say to someone or anyone, or don't drink alcohol. And whether it's legal or not legal or weed is legal or not legal, what's happening now is they're developing synthetic drugs, man-made drugs. So they're incredibly strong. Long gone are we're just growing weed in the backyard and we're smoking butt. This is synthetic THC that is incredibly, incredibly strong. And all of this, because it's man-made, like anything else, even if you think about the food and the processed food that we eat, has a consequence. And the consequence for us is that it is impacting our mental health. How so? So we may have underlying mental health disorders that we're not aware of, or we might have a serious underlying mental health illness, schizophrenia, something like that. And what happens is if we take a synthetic drug or we take some sort of hallucinogenic and we're unaware of what's lying dormant, that could have an absolute effect on that and it will kick it into high gear, exaggerate it, and that teenager will be left suffering from something way longer than they were meant to have on this one-time thing of trying a drug or substance. So we're seeing a lot, a lot, a lot of that. And we're also seeing people really struggling with their own self-worth and their own connection to their inner source or their soul self. And I really never had an intention of, of, of writing a book. I guess everyone now and again thinks, oh, I should write a book about this or I should write a book about that. But as you said, it's an extremely arduous process, time consuming and difficult. And so, but I felt, and I started writing it during lockdown because I felt so many people were suffering. The amount of phone calls that I started receiving during lockdown were those of severe mental health crises. So the addiction was the symptom, mm -hmm. but what lies underneath the symptom is the depression, the anxiety, the trauma. And this narrative that we've built about ourselves. I talk in the book about putting little post-it notes on our soul, mm -hmm. yeah. right? And essentially, we're taking these things that are unconscious, that we're unaware of, and the things that we're unaware of, that we haven't looked at, that we haven't healed, that we haven't scarred, that are still wounds, all of those things will affect our personality, our behavior, our personal narrative. And if we're not cognizant of that, then we're sort of running around like chickens without our heads, feeling disconnected and disassociated mm -hmm. and not knowing who we are. The other part of addiction that really came in full force over lockdown was eating disorders. And what struck me and was devastating at that time is that 
adolescents and young adults who were now on Zoom all day long in school looking at themselves mm. with no real sense of their inner world or that connection to it started to associate themselves with what they saw. And the eating disorders just went up so much, so much so that there was a six-month wait for adolescent treatment in residential eating disorder clinics. And that is something we have never seen before. So these kids that were incredibly, incredibly sick had to be home with their parents trying to manage this because they were unable to get them the care that they needed. Mm. Wow. Yeah. I had never really thought about that particular dimension that you're essentially, you're staring at yourself in two dimensions, um, you know, all day long mm -hmm. in combination with being actually alone. Um, and I think the, the loneliness epidemic certainly plays uh, a role in this caustic soup that you just described. I mean, I recently read a book by Vivek Murthy, who's the Surgeon General, you know, who's declared loneliness essentially an epidemic. There's some statistics in there that like, you, you almost have to read nine times to actually think that they're not a typo. You know, over 50% of Americans identify themselves as lonely. And the other one that just was completely astounding was that 58% of all people, whether they were single or in a relationship or not, um, reported eating every single meal alone. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you talk about self-worth. When you're lonely and you don't feel that sense of connection, that is a vicious cycle because essentially you feel like you're unlikable. You don't have self-worth. And then, of course, what do you turn to to feel that sense of connection? Well, some sort of maladaptive, inappropriate option to help you feel whole and god you know it's just devastating i mean i have three teenage girls um and you know without divulging too much about you know their lives man i saw this up front uh every day um mm -hmm. and, and you know i think one thing that that seems very reassuring. And I, I think your part, you're sort of at the tip of the spear in leading this movement. It, it's almost like how functional medicine approaches disease. Instead of just treating the actual symptoms, you're actually going upstream to identify and treat the root cause of the pathology. So what would you say with that in mind would be the kind of root cause uh, of this scourge uh, of addiction? The way I look at it is essentially we're suffering from soul loss and we've stopped using the language of soul yeah. in our vernacular. We talk about spirit and somewhere along the lines, you know, instead of it being separate, which it was, in a lot of ancient times and in religion, and when we look back at theology and all the different ideologies, we see that it is different, but it became, it became the same and people used it interchangeably. 
And I, I, I probably did as well until I really started to understand the difference. And understanding the difference gave me a sense that soul was so much more personal than my spiritual practice, which was a personal practice of how I related to something, though, outside of myself, something greater than myself, if you will. And soul work became about tapping into my own personal beliefs, my own personal unconscious, my own personal collective unconscious, and really the unique fingerprint of the essence of who I am. Hmm. And, and does that implicitly mean excavating your own trauma? Um, because yes. this is something that obviously gets anchored within our subconscious. <clears throat> and I think it's easy to sort of sleepwalk through life and keep that under the crust of consciousness and just sort of not deal with it. Um, and I know that, you know, we both were together relatively recently with, with Gabor, um, who talks a lot about trauma. And I think, you know, you guys share some of the same ideas about the nature of trauma. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I wonder if you could unpack um, trauma, because a lot of people, I, I still think that trauma is the actual of event of abuse and neglect or racism or an accident. And then we're essentially just stuck with it because it happened. But could you kind of unpack how you've become to understand trauma? Mm -hmm. So I get asked this question all the time, <laughs> of course. And the way that I explain it is the event itself is traumatic for some people, <clears throat> but it's subjective to that person based on whether they've had previous trauma, because we know that trauma couples on top of each other. And so all of a sudden it could be the one thing that is the straw that breaks the camel's back, where that is just where we end up not having enough resilience to and manage what's been going on inside of us. But an event can be traumatic. What we're looking to heal though, is the way that we're experiencing this past event in the present time, mm -hmm. because we're meant to live in the present. And when something that has happened long ago albeit traumatic, is still affecting the way that we're living today in the present by the way that it's affecting our nervous system and so many other parts of us, then we have to address the healing in the here and the now. So, you know, people don't want to say, well, that doesn't mean that this wasn't traumatic. No, this was traumatic. What happened to you was traumatic and we aren't going to be able to change that event. Well, our goal is though, is to heal your present day reaction to something that happened before. Mm, yeah, that's so good. And I, I, you know, it speaks to 
the utility of developing a mindfulness practice or anything that essentially can bring you into the present moment and bring you, help bring you to the realization that every experience of the past is actually happening in the present. So like you said, we can't change what happened, but maybe we can change how our body and brain are experiencing the emotions that we connect with the event in the present moment. And, you know, th that was something in the book that I just, it felt really optimistic to me because that gives us a tremendous sense of agency that yes. if trauma is not a thing, like a fixed thing, <laughs> then we have the opportunity to sort of reframe the salience and the valence, you know, that we lop onto it. We're dealing with human beings. We're incredibly complex. So for me, looking at addiction or trauma through the lens of soul sort of was a way for me to widen the lens that we would normally look at everything. We talk about the biology of trauma or addiction. We talk about the psychology of how it affects us. We talk about neurobiology and we talk about the environment, right? And so all of these things are different ways that we talk about it and ways that we heal. We're gonna have to do it in all these different ways. It depends on the person and where they are. There's no shortcuts, but for me, doing soul work gave me back the agency it was the thread through all of those different other modalities, which I have done and still do, to work on myself and to continue to grow. But it was using that to sort of be able to continue and be able to grow down on my own time in a way that I knew that I needed to, while also doing all of these other things. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, part of my goal here with having this conversation with you is to also help people that are listening or watching um, develop a sense of um, not just compassion, but a deeper level of understanding for, you know, people that may be suffering, you know, from addiction and mm -hmm. trauma. Um, and, you know, one of the things that you point to in the book are ACEs, so adverse childhood experiences. Um, I wonder if you could talk about what that is and what those are and how uh, they serve as determinants for the development of, of later pathologies. Mm -hmm. Sure. And anyone can go online and take the test to see how many adverse childhood experiences you may have had. And the higher the number, the more likely that when something traumatic happens, and again, subjective, two people could be in the same car accident, witness the same exact thing, and one person a week or so later can feel like they've moved forward and the other person is still stuck in a lot of that freeze moment. 
for them. So the ACE study was a study that was done that really showed the things in our childhood that made it really difficult to move forward. There were these traumatic moments that end up looking like what I would what I would call chronic trauma. Mm. So if you have a parent who is suffering from addiction or mental health and they're inconsistently showing up, you never know what you're going to get. That's something that will look like ongoing chronic trauma. And that would be an adverse childhood experience, a missing parent. Maybe that parent has passed away. Maybe that parent is in jail, whatever. Maybe that parent is away, you know, on a job or in, you know, in the service, whatever that is. And also divorce. And we look now at all of these different things that happen to us when we're children. And this shapes our attachment to others. When we're a young person, we haven't established a healthy amount of ego yet. Our brains aren't fully developed till we're 25. And so babies and toddlers and young people really feel as if the world revolves around them because there is no sense of separation between us and our caregivers. And, you know, I was talking about this the other day. There's a very, there's this point in our lives where all of a sudden we have this realization where all of a sudden we go, oh, wait a minute. My parents are people? (laughs) Like they have their own stuff happening to them? (laughs) It's called Sonder. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Everyone's going through some shit. Yeah. Wow. And... But that's because for so long we were we we inherently believe that anything that is happening or any discourse that's happening within our lives when we're kids is a direct result of something that we've done or or the way that we are or that something's mm. wrong with us. Mm. And that's what the adverse childhood um, experiences point to. Yeah, as you were doing your own soul work, how important was it to excavate some of these traumas of your own past? And, you know, these are enumerated in the book, so I'm not uh, asking you to talk about anything that you you otherwise haven't talked about. Yeah. But um, No, it's all out there. <laughs> it's all out there. I mean, I know that, you know, for example, you had a very complicated relationship, you know, with your parents. Um, how important was doing that work to getting to the place where you are now? It was every, it's everything. It was, it was very important. It wasn't until I got sober that I really was able to even take a look at myself, let alone my relationships with others. I feel like there's that jump between people that are abstinent and people that are sober and people that are sober are really diving in to do that self-discovery work, to start to really not just live abstinent free from drugs and alcohol, but also to live a sober lifestyle and 
show up and be of service and understand what it means to live in humility and to practice all of this all of the time. And so for a number of years, that's what I worked on, learning that to the best of my ability and messing up along the way, for sure. We don't become sober and become perfect by any means. So, <clears throat> but then there was a certain point where I wanted to have a relationship with my parents. And that was about really forgiving and having empathy, recognizing their own trauma, what they've been through, and that they were doing the best they could. And that I had to surrender and somehow let go. Hmm. That was hardest with my mom because she was also suffering with her own addiction issues. But there was a moment in time when we were doing family work together and she was in treatment. And I said to her, like, is this it? Like, we don't have a relationship. And I said, I feel like if God forbid you know, you died tomorrow. I don't even know what I would say because we have no connection. Is this what you want? And I think that really struck both of us of like, we needed to come back to a place now, especially if we were both going to be sober and be able to release everything that had happened in the past that I had done, that she had done, all this stuff and really move forward from a place of empathy and understanding. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. I mean, so you went clean, I think in 2002, is that right? Correct. Um, and obviously this was essential it was an essential foundation for just health and good decision making. Um, but I think you know, one of the things that you really point to. In it the was book, essential for like living. Living. <laughs> Fair enough. Yeah. If you want to keep on living, <laughs> it is essential that you do this. Yes. This is sort of like ground zero here. Um, and at the same time, um, you know, and you were thriving you know, in your career um, from, uh, let me rephrase that. And you were from an outsider's perspective, very successful in your career. Um, well, no, I wasn't. I wasn't successful in my career until after I got sober. Okay. So I had this job, <laughs> <laughs> but I was phoning it in at best. And I was a young agent, didn't have a ton of responsibility okay. and hadn't sort of made anything happen yet. Got it. Got it. So, it, so even though, though, that you were, were clean at that point, it feels very clear that there was some underlying issue that still wasn't addressed. Like you weren't fulfilled. You, you didn't feel whole. And in some ways, even though I think, you know, you make this distinction between abstinence and sobriety or sobriety, that in some ways 
you were looking towards other external agents that are perhaps more insidious forms of addiction that sort of allow you to kind of limp along, you know, to assuage Mm -hmm. some underlying discontent there. Can you talk about like, talk about that period in your life where you're like, I'm clean, but there's something still missing. Yes, definitely. So that started to happen when I had about five years clean, as I talk about in the book. I sort of woke up that morning with this belief that this was going to be a big, huge day. This was such a big milestone I had thought would never happen. And here it was. And instead of waking up and feeling like I wanted to celebrate, I felt unhappy. And what I was lacking, unbeknownst to me, was meaning and purpose and joy from a very deep level. I had gotten sober. I had done the work. I had done the steps. I was an active member in my 12-step community. But what I hadn't yet healed was my trauma. Mm. And that is because I didn't know what the word meant. And I didn't know that it still needed to be done. And it wasn't until a few years later when I started getting curious about what else was out there and started reading a lot of self-help books and started asking a lot of questions and then ultimately decided to go back to school at night while I was agenting. And yes, I was very successful, but I had put down the drinks and, and the drugs And I had just picked up essentially this addiction to power and prestige and ego. When we're, you know, I talk about, we talk about this inner world and we talk about archetypes and different parts of ourselves. And I talk about my addiction, who I personified as Trixie. When I was using... I was wearing essentially this mask of Trixie and that is who I believed myself to be. I put down the mask of Trixie or I put her over here and I picked up this other mask of Lisa Hallerman, the fabulous hot talent agent. And I don't mean like hot looking, I mean like hot successful. And, and I wore that mask And I believed that to be true. And I acted accordingly, which was often condescending, slightly bitchy, some would say very, not nice, and very full of her own ego, Hmm. despite the fact that I was on the outside succeeding. And so at five years, what started to happen was, right, my insides weren't matching up with my outsides. And I was like, whoa, what is that? And why did I just pick up this mask? And who am I really without it? Many people know folks that have gone clean from drugs and alcohol but have picked up some other form of addiction, 
essentially mm-hmm. another way that makes them feel whole and connected. And that often can be, you know, fame or popular recognition. I think there's plenty of those people kind of in the, in the social media ecosystem, mm-hmm. um, who are still looking for something from the outside, you yes. know, to assuage their discontents or their perceived deficiencies, et cetera. And then obviously there's the other forms of more, um, you know, I guess I would call them insidious addictions, you know, pornography or shopping or sugar, chocolate cake, <laughs> whatever, um, that, you know, aren't per- potentially don't require the same sort of, you know, five alarm bell status as, as drugs and alcohol, but are still incredibly, um, detrimental to one's, you know, well-being. Um, so how, what was it, you know, it's funny, like Jung talks a lot about this. It's just built into, um, Eric Erickson talks about this. A lot of the psychologists talk about this sort of like spiritual U-turn that, some people are lucky to have it's this kind of a moment of awakening where it's like wait a minute hold on all of these masks that i'm putting on this isn't me i gotta stop looking out and i've got to start to as you say grow down and look inward so what was that inflection point for you and how did you get there and then how did it manifest i didn't have any of this language back then yeah right I was representing movie stars and making movies and doing things like that. These, these terms were not in my vernacular. <laughs> so I didn't know, but I had an intuition. I had a soul whisper. I knew intuitively that something was off and that was enough for me to either feel like, you know what, if I don't do something or look and see what else this might be, then I might relapse. And that was too scary of a thought. Mm. And so, yes, I was still reaching for things outside of myself to make myself feel better, to fill that hole. But I was more aware of it now. So it wasn't as unconscious as it used to be, right? But I still didn't know what the answer was. When I started learning about trauma, it became really clear to me that I had suffered trauma, that I was had suffered extreme PTSD, that a lot of my symptoms and what drove me to use were, and what was still driving a narrative for me was, was trauma. And so I decided to go and work on that and started to heal. And listen, I'm, I'm a nerd. I went to law school. I eventually went back to school and got my master's and doctorate. You know, if I read a book, I'm calling the author. I want to understand what this is about. That's how I became friends with Gabor. You know, this is, this is the way I operate. So I started learning and things started connecting the dots for me. And eventually I got to the point where I learned enough over here and the world that I was living in 
although it looked extremely successful on the outside, was no longer lighting me up in the same way that this new world that I was curious about was. Mm-hmm. And Marianne Williamson, a friend of ours, was a very close friend of mine, is a very close friend of mine. And back then we were working together and she, and I said to her, how am I going to know when I need to leave the entertainment business and go into this addiction field? How will I know? And she said, you'll know when you know, (laughs) there's nothing to know. That's your ego. And I was like, oh God, no, come on, I'm serious. And she's like, that, this hasn't happened yet. There's nothing to know. And I was still getting used to the way she spoke to me. This was like new friendship back then. And she was right. And one day I just walked into the agency and I knew in my body that I didn't belong there anymore. And that this new world that I'd been cultivating on the side was more of where I was supposed to be. And that's when I made the decision to leave. Yeah. Was that on your birthday? I think I read it was on your 43rd birthday. (laughs) Yeah, it was. So I I want to know. um, So we share many of the same relationships. In fact, it just the light bulb just went off that I think we were at Gracias Madre, which is this wonderful vegan Mexican restaurant once in, in Los Angeles. And Marianne came, and I think we were there to celebrate Gabby's book, um, who I know is also very influential in terms of your healing mm-hmm. and your um, and your yeah. awakening. I also have sort of a very tangential relationship with Ari, your old boss. So I wonder what that was like for you to summon the courage to walk into Ari's office and say, hey, guess what? I'm dropping all this and I'm going to do something totally different. What, what was that experience like? So there's another part in the book where I decided first, you know, it, it's probably not maybe the agency I'm at at UTA, I need to go to Endeavor. And then when I got to Endeavor, I was like, maybe it's LA and I need to move to New York. And I go to Ari and I say, can I please move to New York? And he says, yes. And he starts the rollout of me moving to New York and working from there and so on and so forth. And I go to New York and I have this intuition that says, no, you're not supposed to be in New York. That's not the answer. And I go back to Ari and I say, all right, I can't move to New York. And he looks at me and says, what is going on? And that's when I was able to say, listen, I I don't know. I'm having an existential crisis. I need a minute to figure it out. And he said, hurry up. So by the time I decided I wasn't going to work there anymore, their initial reaction was, well, okay, great. You want to be a producer? You want to be a manager? We'll set you up. You'll work here. You'll do this. Let me make a call, blah, 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 blah. Fix it, fix it, fix it. Change it, change it. And I was like, no, I'm done. I'm done with this chapter. I want to do something else. And Ari got it right away and has was and has been one of my biggest supporters in building the company that I have now. And we are incredibly much more closer than we ever were when I was when I was doing that. So hmm. it took a minute, but but then he was right there. He got it. He got it. Cool. That's great. That's a great story. Um, 
You talk about the acorn theory in the book. Mm-hmm. What is the acorn theory? The acorn theory is something that James Hillman speaks about, and he writes about it in his book, The Soul's Code. And when I read that book, that really struck me. And basically what he says is an acorn is going to turn into this very unique, beautiful, special, grand oak tree. It doesn't need any instructions. It doesn't need any help. It doesn't need any support from anybody. It's just destined to become that oak tree. And that our souls are similar, that we have this knowing inside of us. And if we listen, we can hear it. We're not, we have free will as human beings. We're going to take the wrong turn or we're going to use self-will and want to make something happen or manipulate something into happening because we want it so badly. But intuitively, if we stop to listen, we will really heal, hear those soul whispers. And this idea that everything I needed to know was already inside of me was profound and helpful. Mm, (laughs) And (laughs) I really, really resonated with that. There's also a story about Michelangelo when he was creating the statue of David. Do you know this story? Go for it. Yes. Yeah. And he, they brought him all the most beautiful marble that they had and they laid it out and he looked at all of it and something caught his attention in the corner and it was this other piece of marble and he looked at it and he said, that's the piece of marble I want. And they said, no, 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 that's, you know, it's cracked. These are the best pieces. Pick from one of these. And he said, yeah, but, but the statues in that one. Right. Right. And he had that ability to see what existed inside. And that's a lot of the growing down work is to be able to see what already exists within us yeah Mm, so good elisa so good so this idea you pulled that together so well so um like the acorn that your purposeful life is this thing already inside you and that instead of always having to look outside because this is you know this is almost like a bug in the system of our sensory instruments which are obviously very useful for our biological imperatives to survive and to procreate and do some other things like that but it 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 anchors us to conscious attention or spotlight attention that's always out here and then we're labeling Mm -hmm. all of these things and sort of this external world and then we start to compare ourselves against those things etc and then that ends up you know informing this ego this false symbol that we give ourselves that then we begin to identify with etc and you know what you're talking about really is not outside not growing all this all of this all the time, but actually finding the gem that's already in there, like Michelangelo, it's the chipping away to reveal Mm -hmm. that 
glorious, beautiful self that you already are, and it's already in there. And um, and you do such a wonderful job for painting that picture. So that's really awesome. Um, you know, do we need to have, well, in you know, in the world of of AA and and certainly in the world of addiction, we often talk about it as rock bottom. Um, you know, you in some ways frame it as the dark night of the soul. Do we need to have these periods of extreme adversity and in some cases pain and suffering in order to grow? Is that just a prerequisite for growth? I think that's a prerequisite for life. We're Hmm. going to have it. We're going to suffer. We're going to experience grief and heartbreak and pain and suffering. Again, it's not about what happens to you. It's about the meaning that you make from it. And that is where the wisdom lies. So it's not that I'm saying, oh, you need to go out there and have more suffering or you need to go and relapse and learn a bit more. It's not that I would wish suffering or pain on anyone, but we are all going to have our fair share of it at some point in our lives. And we have the choice of what we want to do with that. And some people will use that as a way to pause, sit in the discomfort, and really alchemize that pain Mm -hmm. into purpose. And, And others will not. And that process can go on and on and on and on. And it's not about not feeling it. It's about not being afraid to feel it mm. and not feeling like we're going to fall into an abyss and not be able to stop crying or not be able to show up for work or not be able to make dinner for the kids or whatever it is, but that we're going to set aside some time. We can't walk around in the dark night all day long. It doesn't work for our lifestyle. It doesn't mean we're not in it though. Mm. So we have to make time, personal time, to go into, I talk about the cave, to go into my personal cave and sit with what's happening. And when something happens, we're usually forced into that dark night. We're forced into it and maybe we're not prepared, we're not ready, It feels very dark. It feels scary. So it's about going in at times and understanding where it is so that you can titrate between real life and going into the darkness to gain the wisdom that we need. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And thereby share it with others, which is really all we're supposed to do. Yeah. Well, that's where we find life's purpose really is again then in sharing and and finding connection to something greater than ourselves and you know i don't know if you're familiar with a with a gentleman named david kessler he's a a grief expert. i love david wonderful wonderful guy and he has really one of the more preeminent experts on grief and so he was a 
a student and a colleague with Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who kind of established those five stages of grief. And David added a sixth one, which is essentially what you're talking about, sort of the alchemizing of all this pain into meaning, you know, mm -hmm. or I think what we often refer to as post-traumatic growth. Um, and obviously Viktor Frankl talked a lot about this, you know, Dostoevsky asked famously, am I worthy of my suffering? Like, can we be worthy of it um, and use it um, as a foundation upon which, you know, to grow and to find meaning in that suffering? Um, and obviously that is hard wrought. Um, but on the other side of it is this wonderful life that you've been able to, you know, cultivate for yourself, but also I think really help to, um, you know, to bushwhack that path for a, a lot of other people. Uh, that's why I feel like how you've told your story and how you've shared it is so, so uncommonly um, helpful uh, for others. As part of that journey to find post-traumatic growth or, mm -hmm. um, or purpose, you know, what are those protocols, if, if you will? I mean, and they might not be just a whole sort of bullet point list of, of actionable modalities like some things mm -hmm. are, but, you know, how do you, what do you actually do to live a life of sobriety? What is that sobriety method? So... The method is, you know, it's both a method of, we talked about how our soul is so personal and specific to us. So it's really a method of learning to connect and then utilize all of the stuff that lives in our inner world and use it and make it known, the stuff that's unknown, make it known. The parts that live within us, make them part of our everyday life. Understand the wounds. So really dig into that inner world and use that in order to have the deepest knowing of who we are. Mm -hmm. And for me, it's become essentially this lifestyle of continuing to grow down and that's where my sobriety comes in as an addition to my sobriety. Because my sobriety keeps me well, it keeps me connected, and it helps me stay sober. But the sobriety lifestyle helps me to keep cultivating meaning and purpose in my life, which as I'm growing up and as I'm getting older, is changing all the time. Mm -hmm. And we always are redefining what success looks for us, looks like for us. So that's really what sobriety means to me. And then, you know, how do we do it? How do we practice it? I talk a lot about it in the book is that we're really learning to tap into our imagination to mythology, to imagery, mm -hmm. to the imaginal, to symbols. This is how the soul speaks to us. 
So if we want to be able to understand soul or do soul work or care for the soul or understand the dark night of the soul, then we have to be able to speak the same same language. And that's why I had to tell the book in story, because that was the only way I could connect from my soul to somebody else's. Mm-hmm. So it's really cultivating an understanding of all of those other things and really being able to, you know, we talked about trauma and I look at trauma as soul loss, that something happens and it creates a fragmented part of ourself, right? Something happens that is so out of the realm of possibility that we ever thought would happen and we break to pieces. And I talk about the imagery of one of those experiences for me and all of the pieces of myself on the floor in the kitchen and really looking at them. And we'll often hear people who are suffering from something traumatic say, I feel like I lost a piece of myself or I feel like something's missing. And we're using these terms because that's what it feels like on the inside. So it's really healing by putting these pieces back together, which is done slowly and knowing that the scary thing for me was knowing that I had to put these pieces back together, knowing that my life would never look the same because the pieces would be put back together differently. And that felt scary because change feels scary, but doing it anyway. And knowing that whatever that new version of me looked like was going to be the one that most suited myself and others that were around me. Mm. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah, there's a Japanese uh, art form known as kintsugi, which Mm -hmm. is essentially the reconstitution of broken pieces of ceramics, you know, back into a whole. And uh, it uses uh, molten gold in the best case scenario uh, to to essentially reassemble uh, broken cups and bowls and tea caddies. And when that molten gold hardens, they're called precious scars, which I thought is such an amazing image. And, uh, you know, as you, you know, speak, you know, to this phenomenon of, you know, being broken to pieces and how that happens in life and mm-hmm. how people tell you to pull yourself together or, or whatever. Um, and, you know, part of that process is essentially a remembering. Um, Alan Watts kind of makes a sort of funny, ironic joke where he says, you know, the opposite of remember is not forget, it's actually dismembered mm-hmm. that in this life we get cut up and we're yep. dismembered into all of these different disparate parts. And part of that process of healing is re- the remembering, literally, of all those um, broken parts. And it's such a, it's a poignant image. And of course, this is what you're talking about. You're talking about the use of image yes. and um, mythology, not as falsehoods or, or myths in, in that term, but mythologies in terms of story that makes that 
pulls people's soul into a a feeling of understanding, not just a cognitive sense of understanding, and uh, and that's so much more powerful. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about um, uh, the Recovery Management Agency (RMA), um, and uh, I couldn't help but like chuckle a little bit in the book when you're talking about like, I leveraged all my skills of my agency <laughs> life. I didn't fully eschew those, you know, I, I, um, you know, I've, I've leveraged all of that stuff into, um, a really completely revolutionary concept in, in addiction treatment. So can you talk a little bit about RMA and, and what you're doing? Yes. So Recovery Management Agency, we work with individuals and families, companies, schools that really come to us and walk through the door of either there's some sort of substance abuse or behavioral addiction happening. There may be a mental health crisis or some mental illness, anxiety, depression, bipolar, schizophrenia, and so on or something traumatic has happened. People are really coming in to say, hey, this is what's going on, and now what? Because there wasn't really a place for anyone to go, I felt, that would help you and manage this part of your mental health for you, that you inevitably are going to your general practitioner or your psychiatrist, or you're asking a friend who they went to see for therapy. But all of that felt very antiquated to me. And you're Googling information and you're reading books upon books. And it just was like, why aren't there people? And so a little bit of having been a lawyer and having people come to me for legal advice or being an agent and have people come to me for career advice, I was able to sort of take that blueprint of the talent agency and say, hey, I want to create a place where people can come and say, here's what's going on for me. And now what do I do? And so what we do is really these deep dives and these full assessment and discoveries into people's stories. Who are they? Where have they been? What does their life look like? What are the things that light them up? Where might there have been ruptures? and really take a much more integrated medical approach to looking at mental health, like we discussed, mm -hmm. and then put together treatment teams, general health teams, anything in their life that, so that they don't have to think about the stress while they're healing. And we really put together all of that for them. And we also do a lot of crisis management in things that are going on at the moment, whether that's getting someone in for psychiatric care that's psychotic or helping someone who's suicidal, getting someone into detox right away, getting someone out of a really bad situation, maybe out of the country, stuck using drugs and alcohol alone in a hotel room in Costa Rica, and we got to go in and grab them and get them and bring them back and, and help them. Yeah. I mean, there's numerous accounts in the book of quite harrowing work that you're doing, you know, around interventions. And like, I mean, obviously you're doing a lot of 
kind of higher level planning as you talk about, but this is a very, very hands-on um, uh, approach as well, where you're managing, like you said, situations that are in crises, you know, w with people that are in, um, you know, crisis states and managing the relationships between families and et cetera. So it's, it's, it's really just astounding how you're able to to kind of balance all of that work um, and just be available for people on that level. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I guess that, that was kind of my question when I kind of finished the book was more about you too and how you're able to manage and cope with the responsibility for a lot of mm -hmm. people's lives. I mean, I, you know, and how you don't, you know, how you remain sort of emotionally available there, because I mean, you've had, you've been so close to so much pain and suffering. I mean, you know, even kind of back earlier in the book when you're talking about your, I think your initial boss at ICM who, you know, commit, committed suicide. Um, mm -hmm. Is there a part of you that just goes numb or is there, are you, how are you able to manage sort of being very emotionally there and available without being kind of overwhelmed yourself? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's a great question. I, I've worked through so much of my own pain. I mean, this is obviously a career that I started in my 40s. And I can look back and feel incredibly grateful that I even lived through any of it. And so I have this deep desire to give people that faith and that hope that they can too. That being said, it's extremely emotional and heart-wrenching. And I've learned to be boundaried. I'm never going to be numb to it. There's just no way that I could show up and do a good job and be present and care and empathetic if I didn't have that. But, you know, I often I often talk about with my team, I use this 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 image of a bridge that on one side of the bridge is this incredibly bright light, which is where we stand. And on the other side of the bridge is the darkness where a lot of people are still suffering and that we can go halfway. And ideally they're going to walk and meet us halfway. And there are times when I will get really, really close to the dark and just stick my hand in <laughs> to maybe try and grab them out, but I will not stay there for very long because if I'm not closer to the light, then people that do need my help can't find me. Mm. And so I will often check myself as to where I am exactly on that bridge. Mm. And then we really try to celebrate the wins, the small little wins when we see people succeeding or getting something or a family getting just a piece of healing because the tragedies of our day-to-day -day sometimes are exactly that but they're happening anyway 
And so, and we're hearing about them anyway. So I sort of feel like I just want to jump in and, and try to help. And I feel very called to do this job at this point in my life. Hmm. Yeah. The way you describe it uh, makes me think of this image from Mahayana Buddhism. So Maha means great. Yana is sort of conveyance. So the great conveyance from essentially the dark to the light. And to make that trip across the river, um, you need a ferryman, you know? <laughs> so, mm -hmm. um, and in Buddhism, they call that ferryman the Bodhisattva. So you can be a Buddha, you can be an awakened one. And, you know, you had your moment of awakening and satori, and you could just also live very comfortably over there. But the Bodhisattvas actually go back into the world and mm -hmm. they help the others across the river or across mm -hmm. the bridge, as you described it. And I would put you firmly in that category as the Bodhisattvas. And really in Buddhism, the Bodhisattvas are, are, are revered even higher than the Buddhas. So <laughs> I will now well, refer to you, you that, as the Bodhisattva. That's, <laughs> that's quite the title. <laughs> yeah, well, you could add it. You, you've had various names over the course of your life. That could You could just add it uh, to, your, to your, your name. You have enough letters at the end of your... Uh, uh, at the end of exactly. your name with you. Um, but yeah, I'm really uh, appreciative of your work. I am really uh, enjoyed the book, as I told you before we started recording. You know, I read a lot of books kind of as part of my job. Um, mm -hmm. And very, many of them are, are highly clinical and full of information. This book is full of information, absolutely. But it was a joy to read um, Thank you. I'd say it was joy might be the wrong word. It was compelling to read um, because of your superlative storytelling. And I, I really think you're on to something there. So thanks for, uh, for all your work. Um, where can people find you and, and keep abreast uh, of everything that you're doing? So the website is drhallerman.com. That's D-R-H-A-L-L-E-R-M-A-N.com. And that has a whole wide range of information on that. Or they can follow me on social media. My Instagram is Dr. Alisa Hallerman. And, and usually you can get a lot of information there as well. Nice. Okay, Elisa, thanks so much. I really appreciate you being here. And uh, hopefully you. we can do it again. Yeah, definitely. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really appreciate it. Right on. Okay, thanks a lot for listening to my conversation with Dr. Elisa Hallerman, be sure to check out her book, Soulbriety, a plan to heal your trauma, overcome addiction, and reconnect with your soul. So I'd like to leave you with a few key takeaways from the podcast today. So number one, depression, anxiety, and trauma and addiction are often linked to adverse childhood experiences known as ACEs can lead to an interruption of healthy attachment. And that is correlated with a higher likelihood of experiencing loneliness, depression, anxiety, and addiction later in life.
Okay, three, addiction creates dysregulation and dysfunction between different parts of the brain that would otherwise perform harmoniously. Number four, treating addiction is largely about shifting from the need for external validation to a sense of internal fulfillment. Number five, the use of imagination, mythology, imagery, and symbolism can be useful tools on the path to healing. And lastly, awareness of one's own discontent can lead to the curiosity that becomes post-traumatic growth, creating strength, character, and beauty, and even meaning out of suffering. Okay, well, if you enjoy this show, please subscribe on Apple Podcasts and leave us a review. If you're a regular listener, you have a sense for how much effort we put into the show's creation and we do our best to keep sponsors to a minimum. So if you're looking for a way to support our efforts, the best way to do so is subscribe to Commune. You'll access more than 130 courses featuring the world's top authors and thought leaders. And you can check it out for 14 days for free, no strings attached, at onecommune.com trial. Of course, feel free to reach out to me directly at any time with questions, suggestions, criticism of the constructive sort, at jeffk at onecommune.com. Lastly, I'd like to thank the folks that make this show possible, including Jake Lau, Megan Stone, Lita Maliga, Violet Augustine, Silvana Alcala, Wellington Gonzalez, and Ryan Tillotson. Okay, that's all from the commune for this week. My name is Jeff Krasnow, and I'm here for you. <laughs>